Welcome to Ivy League Murders, where we deep dive on cases related to academia. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. My name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami grad, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. In Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. So welcome to Ivy League Murders. Welcome, yes. And uh, we can't believe we're going on episode 21, which is quite amazing. And we want to thank all of our listeners. And if you would like a way to support us, uh, you could buy us a cup of coffee at buymeacupofcoffee.com. If you could subscribe, if you listen to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on, and also give us a five-star review, we would really appreciate it. Every bit helps. That's a way without any type of financial commitment to support us, and we really, really would appreciate that. So this week, we have a very, very special guest who is going to talk about their book, Trial by Fire. On a snowy February night in 2003, the rock band Great White was playing at the station in West Warwick, Rhode Island. People showed up to the show to shake off the work week and the winter blues. They went there to blow off some steam, flirt, drink, and dance. The 1980s hair band, Great White's waning reputation was catapulted into notoriety that night when they set off fireworks as part of their show. Through a catastrophic series of events, the evening ended in virtual holocaust the worst club fire in recent U.S. history, claiming 100 lives. With us today is Scott James, the author of Trial by Fire, which brilliantly details this perfect storm of events that ended in catastrophe. Scott, we are so honored to have you with us. On well, thank Ivy you for League having Harvard. me. I <laughs> thank it. you. So I loved your book. It's about a 350 right page here. book and I couldn't put it down. It kept me up at night. You do such a good job of laying this tragedy out. Can you kind of set up the story for us a bit and tell us a little bit about your background as well? Sure. Uh, so I grew up in a suburb of Providence. I really consider this to be the worst thing that ever happened to where I grew up. And I have since lived in California for many years. But when this happened in 2003, it was, as you mentioned, it was kind of the perfect storm of fires. So you had this band set off these fireworks inside 15 foot fireworks with a 12 foot ceiling club. But the club, the inside was insulated with this foam that was meant to to keep sound insulation for to keep to the neighbors wouldn't be annoyed by what was going on with the rock music. But the foam was highly flammable and the place went up like a torch. And within 90 seconds, basically, if you were still inside that club, you did not survive. So this was considered either an accident or a crime. That was the debate at first. The government decided that it was a crime and they charged a few people, but in the end, everything was settled. Everything was plea bargained. There were no trials. There were no trials for a civil trial or a criminal trial. And so none of the evidence that the government said against the people was ever actually vetted in court. No witnesses were ever cross-examined. So as a result, there were a lot of unanswered questions. So when I would come home from California and visit my family and friends over the years, I would hear these questions like, what about that fire? 
it seemed like we never got the whole story. It seemed like that justice was never served. So about 10 years ago, I started to ask some questions. And you are a journalist by trade as well. Yes. In fact, I had worked in that market for many years in Providence. I ran a TV station there, the ABC station. And so I was very familiar with the state, its history, its corruption, its figures. And in later years, I've actually been writing for the New York Times. So I felt like I had developed a skill set to tackle what would turn out to be a very, very difficult and challenging project to take on. The title of your book, it's like the 15-year quest for justice. I'm paraphrasing Why did it take so long? First of all, you had the key central figures of the fire basically would not share what they knew. They never got a chance to give their side of the story. And there's many different reasons for that. But part of it was an incredible rush to judgment that happened. One of the top law enforcement officials at the scene of the fire basically pointed the finger of guilt before doing any investigation. And so that was against the uh, owners of the nightclub business. Uh, Nightclub itself, the building was owned by somebody else, but the two gentlemen who owned the club, the finger of guilt was pointed at them immediately. And so they had been cooperating with the investigation, telling them everything they knew. And then when it turned out that they looked like the government had already judged them without doing an investigation, their attorney naturally said, look, you cannot talk to the government anymore. And so that entire side, all of that evidence was really kept out of the public's view until now, until this book. Amazing. And so you're talking about the Dedarian brothers, the owners of the station. Let's back up a little bit. You go into the history of Rhode Island a bit and the sort of legacy of kind of being rebellious and being a bit corrupt. Take us there a little bit. Not all our listeners are as familiar uh, with the East Coast and with Rhode Island in particular. We aren't even, and we live quite close to Rhode Island. And it's the smallest state in the 50 states. Correct. The smallest state, and until this past election with the longest name, Providence, uh, Rhode Island, and the Providence Plantations. They finally got rid of the reference to plantations in this last election because of its racial overtones. Look, it was founded by a guy named Roger Williams, who was basically kicked out of Boston, out of Massachusetts, <laughs> and the, the villages that existed there because he was kind of a, a religious rebel. Part of his rebellion was that he believed that people should be able to believe in their own religions, that they didn't have to just believe what the Puritans believed. So he came down to Rhode Island, and he did not try to convert the native peoples to Christianity. They liked that. They let him stay. They gave him land. And he started to set up a state here. So already it was an act of rebellion from the very first part. The Industrial Revolution happened in Rhode Island, in Pawtucket, Slater's Mill. A guy stole the greatest technology of the day from England to create a mill. And you go on from there. You had uh, African slavery was uh, made illegal in Rhode Island 200 years before the Civil War. So they've been always on the cutting edge of like saying, you know, we're going to do things our own way, even though it might not be necessarily popular with everyone else. The environmental movement, they started a group called Save the Bay. It actually saved the bay. You can enjoy Rhode Island's unbelievable coastline these days because of people like that. So there was all of that, all that good stuff, all of that good type of rebellion, being a maverick on top of the state house is a statue of the independent man. And that's really emblematic of how they felt. In time, that kind of changed. It was with the immigrants coming over from Europe in the late 1800s, began an atmosphere of corruption. And eventually the mafia, the mob for all of the Northeast United States was based in Providence, Rhode Island on Atwell's Avenue in the Little Italy section of the city. And the corruption kind of just became endemic. And it was not unusual to see mayors convicted of corruption and go to prison. You had a governor convicted of corruption and go to prison. 
you had two Supreme Court justices, <laughs> chief justices, wow. who had to resign in scandal because of either corruption or, or mob ties. So on one level, unbelievable natural beauty and really interesting place, terrific people. But there's this just little thing. They've got this little black eye that they just can't seem to be able to shake. And that does play a role, frankly, in how things turn out with the station nightclub fire, uh, how things got to where they got and where the case ends up going. And I think Trial by Fire does a great job of laying out what really happened that night. And you've just mentioned the whole chain of events that occurred. And it was, as we've mentioned, it's the Dedarian brothers who own the station. So Talk to us a little bit. The Dedarians are kind of an interesting family. There were two brothers, Jeffrey and Michael, who owned this club. Michael, I believe, he was like the TV reporter, and he was kind of a known personality in the, at least the Rhode Island. Sure, sure. There's two brothers, uh, Michael and Jeffrey. It was Jeffrey was the TV reporter. Oh, I'm sorry. Pardon me. Michael was kind of the local businessman. And in fact, I had worked with Jeffrey more than 25 years ago. He was an employee of mine when I was running a TV station Mm -hmm. in in Providence. So that's how I had knew him before all of this tragedy, many years before this tragedy. So uh, yeah, Jeffrey was uh, kind of a, a big shot. He was a TV reporter in Boston. He was a TV reporter in Providence. He left his very well-paying gig in Boston to come down to Providence to kind of work his way into an anchor gig. So he really wanted to be kind of famous. Uh, He wanted to be a household name. And of course, that eventually does happen, but in the worst way possible because of this terrible, awful fire. And he is the co-owner of this nightclub. Now, can we go back just to the night of the fire and walk through that a little for people who aren't as familiar with actually what happened and like kind of the time frame of that action? Actual evening? Sure. So the band takes the stage at about seven past 11. The band being Great White. Great White. But technically it's called Jack Russell's Great White because like many rock band dramas, <laughs> the band has split and fought and sued each other. And there's actually two competing versions of this band. Even to this day, there was a Great White and there's Jack Russell's Great White. I'm sure they were very particular about that. So they take the stage and they light off fireworks at the beginning of their show. So they light off these 15-foot gerbs in a nightclub that has 12-foot ceilings. And the flames, the sparks from these fireworks uh, set off this acoustic foam that was lining the walls of the club, which should have been fireproof, but in fact, it was highly flammable packing foam instead of sound foam. We can get into that about why that happened, why it didn't have the flame-proof foam, why it had the flammable foam. Um, My understanding, sorry, Scott, that this foam was basically like solid gasoline. Correct. It was an accelerant. Perfectly right. It was like solid gasoline, and it was the equivalent of 13 gallons of gasoline in there. So it went up like a match. And if you were inside that club after 90 seconds, that's how hot and fast this fire grew. You probably didn't survive. So because the temperature from what I read in your book reached about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. Very quickly. quickly. In fact, in the area in front of the stage, it got to 1400 degrees within a matter of like 45 seconds or something like that. People had no chance. And that leads to uh, it's kind of grim, but it leads to this this situation called a flashover. And a flashover is the moment when a fire in a room becomes a room on fire. And literally anything in there will spontaneously combust. And that means anything and anyone. So it's an awful, terrible, you don't have a chance to get out alive situation. And that happened in this little club 
in a matter of seconds. One of the most disturbing things to me about watching the footage, and we'll put up some pictures, we won't put up the actual footage on our Facebook page, was that some people thought this was part of the show. No and question. Didn't, and did not immediately leave. And yes. when you're watching the footage and you're watching this fire begin, people don't know that they're in danger. If you watch the band, you see these two columns of flame. It's actually quite pretty behind the band. You can see people going like, oh, wow, this is part of the show. Probably we first have to explain to people why it is that we know all these things. And that is because one yes. of the really cruel twists in this terrible, awful story is that it was all caught on video from inside. In addition to all the different things that went wrong, there was a local TV news crew that happened to be doing a story inside the club that night. And they were shooting what's called B-roll, generic footage of a concert in a nightclub to be used later in a story. Ironically, the story they were working on was about public venue safety. So they happen to be rolling as the band comes out, shoots off the fireworks, and they continue to roll because I mean, they just think they're getting their footage. So we see moment by moment, second by second, exactly what happens. We see the, the flames start crawling up the wall, columns of fire, and we see that the audience is still dancing and cheering yes, because they that's think what's, it's a special mm -hmm. effect. They think it's part of a show. And this goes to a, a real warning for everyone that as human beings, we have basically lost our fear of fire. Let's face it. We see fires when they're in a nice fireplace in a luxury hotel lobby. We don't cook with fire anymore. We don't heat with fire anymore. So we are not really aware of how dangerous it can be. And out here in California, where I am right now, of course, we've had terrible fires and people have learned that fire moves faster than human beings can run. And so it's incredibly dangerous. And that 30 seconds that people are sitting there watching the show thinking it's just a special effect, that 30 seconds makes a difference between life and death. No, I personally couldn't watch. Sarah watched it. I couldn't watch all that footage. It's very, very disturbing. It's it is very, very disturbing. And I, I don't actually recommend it. Once you get to the 30-second mark where, That's the, where I the, the, the sirens go off, the alarms go off, it gets very horrific very quickly. But the fact is that that tape that that guy shot, that was unbelievably rare. So in 2003, this is before the iPhone has been invented. So there wow. are no smartphones. Today, we're so used to everything being caught on video, but back mm -hmm. then it just didn't happen. Plus you had the fact that this was a professional TV news guy, a professional journalist. I mean, that's really rare. You have to look at like wow. the Hindenburg or 9-11 to find professional grade footage of an actual tragedy of this magnitude caught by a journalist on tape or on film. That made this story, which was already awful, more notorious, and that video is played all around the world. Hundreds of millions of people saw it. I talked to people who f learned about the fire when they were on a remote Greek island, and they were watching it on CNN, like I was watching it on CNN out in San Francisco. It elevated an awful situation and made it even worse. I think really the dispute comes down right between we have this foam and it's very flammable and we'll address that but the dispute comes down pretty solidly on whether jack russell's great white had permission to set those fireworks off so can you speak to that at all sure the band has maintained that they had permission the nightclub business owners have said they did not have permission and there's a lot of evidence frankly to point to the idea that the band did not have permission because Within 24 hours, the New York Times, and within the first news cycle, the New York Times goes and checks on the band's reputation. The band is saying, hey, we have permission to do this. So they just looked up the listing of all the band's recent gigs, called up all the different nightclub owners all around the Northeast, all over the country, and said, did they 
use fireworks in your club? And did you give them permission to do so? And one after another, after another said, no, we did not give them permission. And they did it anyway. Some people were like, no, we said, you can't do it. And they did it anyway. Most mm-hmm. famously was the Stone Pony, which is in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is where Bruce Springsteen got his start. And that club owner was so outraged by what happened. He actually made public the rider, the band's rider, which goes into like what brand of potato chips they're going to eat in their <laughs> backstage. And he pointed out that nowhere in their agreement was anything about fireworks. All of these things, it's show business. It's all cost money. And so if you're going to put on a fireworks display, a pyrotechnics display, it's going to be in the contract. And someone you can have to pay for it. And there's going to have to be permits and permissions. And none of that was at any of these places. So had this gone to trial, which it never did, there were a bunch of nightclub owners from all around the United States who were all lined up to testify against Jack Russell's great white to say, no, they did this to us and they didn't have permission. So there's a lot of compelling evidence on that side of the ledger. The only people who say they had permission is basically the roadie tour manager who set off the explosives. He maintained that he had permission. But there's nothing in writing. That's and that, sure. that's Bicelli, right? They pronounce his name Beakley. Beakley. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank that's you. Good to know. <laughs> and also, obviously, and we've addressed the type of foam that was used to soundproof the station. My understanding from your book is that there was a neighbor, there'd been continual complaints from the neighbors about yes. the noise coming from the club. And it was actually a neighbor who set the Dedarian brothers up with a contract for the foam. Basically, yes. can you tell us a little bit more about What's really interesting about that is that um, the guy named Barry Warner, and by the way, he shares his version of events for the first time in the book, because he was effectively silenced all these years, like the Darien brothers never told their version of events until now. And basically, yes, he did work for a phone company, and he had had a conversation with the brothers about trying to soundproof the building. He will say that he gave them all sorts of ideas, and in the end that they picked to use the foam. And then he kind of like disappears from the picture. The Darians uh, put in an order, sent in an order, contact the foam company directly, not through Barry Warner, set their order for sound foam. And we actually can see that order now, which the public has never seen basically what they asked for. Now, sound foam by law is supposed to be flame retardant. And it says clearly on their order that they are asking for sound foam. What they got was packing foam, which is highly flammable. And so there was a mistake made somewhere in lost in translation between what they asked for and what they received. And that difference, that mistake cost 100 people their lives. Can I ask you a quick question? I mean, there's no question how this fire started. It was the pyrotechnics used by Jack Russell's Great White. Correct. Let me ask you just a hypothetical Let's say that there was a patron there with a careless cigarette that ended up on an ashtray next to this foam. Was this soundproof foam just a ticking time bomb? It was a ticking time bomb. It's an excellent observation. And it's one of the things that was kind of an obvious flaw in the way that uh, the news media covered this story. So after this tragedy, there were a lot of stories about how that fireworks were flying through that place all the time. These guys were terribly irresponsible. They were pyrotechnics every other night, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that makes no sense from a basic science perspective. This foam did not decide that only on February 20th was it going to explode. (laughs) Had there been fireworks like that any other time, the place would have gone up then. The state had this evidence that never got presented fully to the public, but does come out when you scour and examine previously secret grand jury testimony that there were all sorts of pyrotechnics 
displays at the station, the station nightclub prior to this event. So I took a look at that. And what they were talking about, there was a band that had jack-o'-lanterns with candles in them. Now, technically, the government is correct. That is a pyrotechnics display. It is illegal under local law. There was another band that had tiki torches as part of their act. There was a guy who did a Gene Simmons impersonation of another you know, band, Kiss, and he did that thing where he blows the butane out of I his am. mouth. Other people had sound effect where, like the rabbit out of the hat, where there's a little bit of a puff of a cloud. and an expo- So there were all sorts of, quote-unquote, pyrotechnics used in the club prior to this tragedy. But of course, none of them were like this. None of them were great plumes of sparks that ignited the walls. And so, yeah, technically they had a history of pyrotechnics, but it wasn't exactly like this or else it would have gone up prior to that. I think people forget today because there isn't smoking in clubs that Sarah and I were talking yes. about in the 90s when you walked into in the 80s, when you walked into clubs, I mean, it's it was just smoke. It was just a smoke filled room. You could still smoke in this club. You right. could smoke in this club. Absolutely. And people held up lighters, yep. you know, when they liked bands, yes. people were very careless with cigarettes, as I recall, in those days. And it's amazing that an accident didn't happen sooner. I do want to point out, too, you make the point in the book that the Dedarian brothers were really vilified, not only by law enforcement, but also by the press. I guess part of that was not only the soundproof foam that was flammable, but also at that point, the dispute about permission to set off the pyrotechnics. But it was also they got nailed also on the exits from the club itself, because I think this was part of the problem in terms of um, perfectly in the book, how people just crowded to the exit that they knew. And that was part of the issue as well. The exits are a great thing to talk about. First of all, to be clear, I mean, this building was obviously a death trap. Uh, There's no question about that. And a lot of things went wrong simultaneously. And if one of them had not gone wrong, everyone would be alive. So let's be clear, this place did not have sprinklers because they were not required to have sprinklers. That was not part of the local code. Sprinklers are a technology that dates back to the 1800s. There's no reason for a place of public assembly not to have sprinklers, but it didn't. The nightclub owners, the Jadarian brothers, they're renters. They're renting this space. They don't own this building. And so I know that people are like, well, they should have put in sprinklers anyway. It's like, I can't imagine as a renter that I would put in sprinklers in a place that I was renting. There's that. It did have four exits, but things became complicated very quickly. Because the fire started at the um, stage with the band, the stage exit next to where the band got out and a couple of people got out that way, but that's where the fire became 1,400 degrees in a matter of seconds. And so that area becomes impassable because of the heat. So people naturally run away from that. They run in the direction from which they came in. Mm. So there's a huge bottleneck at the front entrance as people are trying to all get out this one door. But there were two other exits. One of them people use and people get out. And the other one is through the kitchen. But prior to the Dedarians owning the nightclub, the fire inspector had required that the exit sign that showed there was an emergency exit through the kitchen be removed because he had determined that under Rhode Island law that it was not good to have an exit through a kitchen. So you've got a bunch of people who's unfortunately whose bodies were found in that area who they could have possibly been saved had they had known that there was a fourth exit right near them, but those signs had been removed. So again, all of these mistakes or misjudgments all add up to tragedy. And so this is part of the reason why. But it's really interesting that people mix up different fires. The Coconut Grove Fire in Boston, Mm -hmm. which is the deadliest fire in United States history, 
there, the doors were locked shut because they didn't want people sneaking in. And people mix that up with this fire. That's not what happened in this case. In fact, the doors all worked. And because of that videotape, remember we talked about that, we see that the doors are all open and that people could get out if they weren't jammed up in that bottleneck at the front door. So it wasn't a matter of the doors not operating correctly. It was a matter of people not knowing where to go. It's interesting. People who worked at the club, they knew about that exit through the kitchen, and that's how they saved their own lives. You mentioned that the story of Gina and Freddie and the fact that they were trying to get through the side, the band door, basically, and they were stopped by... A bouncer. That's one of the things that just... Heartbreaking. And they weren't the only ones who reported that they were turned away from that door. The question, though, becomes, did the person standing at the door not let them go because they knew there was a fire? And I think that that's a really different question. So there's a photo taken by a guy named Dan Davidson, and I actually have it in the book that people can look at and study. And you see the stage fully engulfed in flame. Mm -hmm. And you see this man who was stationed at that door. Now, the door was supposed to be shut during the show, not because it was for VIPs or for showbiz people only. It was supposed to be shut during the door to keep the sound inside because there were so many complaints from the neighbors. And if that door was open, the sound went directly from the stage to people's homes. And so that's why his job was to keep that door shut during the show, not because it was for VIPs only. When you see the man's face, it seems clear to me, or certainly with a question, whether or not he even knows there's a fire. He has such a nonchalant look on his face. Mm -hmm. It's like he has no idea that behind him is complete and utter destruction. And so you've got to ask yourself, did he turn people away from that door because he's supposed to keep it closed because of the sound? Or did he turn people away knowing that there was a fire and that that was a door only for VIPs? I think that's a stretch to take that second conclusion, but it's a very popular one. And had this case gone to trial and people had tried to make that point, I think they would have had a hard time making that argument. Doesn't it make more sense? It's like, no, here's the protocol. We just have to stay closed. I don't know. It seems to me like that's a stupid mistake, but right. once but again, also, well, he you know, seems like, clueless in the picture. Yeah, yeah. He, he seems really... clueless in the picture. And also, we're talking about things that are happening in seconds. This is what's hard to get our minds around. And this is where this story takes some pretty awful turns. Decisions that people make in a split second either save their lives or cost their lives. They became heroes or they became villains. People faced damnation for the rest of their lives based on a decision they made inside that fire mm -hmm. in a millisecond. Remember I talked about the photographer who took all the pictures. Right. Well, he was really depicted as a villain. And people basically said, look, this guy videotaped for his story while people died right before his eyes. As if he made some conscious decision that he was just going to get the story and he didn't care how many people died. Nothing like that happened. All of these things happened in a split second. You actually see him pushed out with the stampede of people leading the club, if you look at the video. So the idea that he traded human lives to get a few seconds of precious footage is just really a stretch. But that is what people say. And this man has been tormented for his entire life since this incident. He was actually another person who had never spoken about what happened, never gave his version of events until he spoke for this book. So other people on the other side of the ledger ran in. They were outside. They ran in to save people and pulled people out again and again and again. And they went back in and they went back in until they never came out themselves. Mm -hmm. Again, yep. people making split second decisions that save lives 
or cost their own lives. It's hard for us to fathom how quickly this happens. You know, I have to say from my readings about when a human being is in a situation like that, your amygdala kicks in and decisions are made from that place. Really, it's your reptile brain that is saying, get the hell out of here. And I think you do such a good job in weaving through some of these personal stories, including like Gina and Freddie and Linda Spifoletto and Phil. Phil Barr, you know, a guy from Bates College up in Maine, just happened to be home visiting his parents and on a lark, hooks up with a friend and they just decide to go to this show. And again, his life is forever changed. He is left for dead inside this inferno. He's one of the last people, I think, to walk out on his own two feet and survive, but barely survive. Uh, This is a guy who was an athlete, a swimmer, and uh, then he has like low lungs left after all of this. Mm -hmm. What happens then, I won't ruin it for people, is kind of amazing. Speaking of heroes too, Laura and I went down to visit the memorial, which is very beautiful, very touching. There are kind of pictures of the victims that are etched into stones of the hundred victims. And the memorial in West Warwick, when we were there visiting, we ran into a couple of guys and they pointed out a couple of people that they knew, two men. uh, Their names were Thomas Barnett and Jason Morton, and we'll post those pictures. Apparently, these guys were in the club pushing other people out of a window to save them and saving lives. There are heroes in this story, and whether there are villains or not, I think we'll let people read your book and figure out. One thing I thought was so interesting was that you, you had mentioned this to us before we even went to the memorial, that it's such a personal story to Rhode Island and that everybody kind of knows somebody that was associated in in Warwick and in that area. And Sarah and I went up there kind of unknowing and not much familiarity. And we're very struck by the beauty and peace of the memorial. And immediately when we got there, we met two people who knew victims. And it really brought home your point. You know, and we were there, I mean, during COVID on a weekday, I mean, just really not a popular time. Nobody was there but us and two other people. And it just really brought home how that memorial, that it really did touch so many, so many people. The book is called Trial by Fire. And so obviously I'm reopening a case and examining it. But as you know, from reading the book, really is the story of these people. Mm -hmm. And so I pick a handful of people to follow before, during, and after this tragedy. And so they are the few that kind of represent the many. I wish I had talked about all 100 people completely and the hundreds more that were hurt and the thousands whose lives were affected. But in the confines of a book, you need to be selective. So the people I focus on also are not just random. These are people who later, as you plot out the book and you see what happens as things unfold, these are people who are in the room when really important developments Mm -hmm. happen in this case and in this event. So Phil is not just the guy left for dead. He has a role that goes on from there. Gina, who we meet in the very first scene because her fiance, Freddie, has left his cross at home, his necklace at home, his good luck charm. And they're sitting in the car. They don't live far. It's like, let's just go back and get it. He's like, "Ah, you know what? You're here. It's going to be a good crowd tonight. We'll lose our parking space. Let's just go in. And of course, that decision over this necklace becomes a life and death decision for this couple. So we see that we're with them before, during, and after this tragedy. That's exactly how we tell the story. The journalism and the uncovering new things, that's all around those people. The people are the central part of the story. And 
frankly, when I read reviews on like Amazon or Goodreads, what's interesting is that nobody says, oh, this breaks news. Nobody says that. People who are reading the book in Omaha or Kansas or in wherever they are, they're just focused on those people and their unbelievable stories of survival, of grit, of determination. This is a situation where a lot of people were failed by the institutions that we think are there to protect us. So we have all of those big issues, but we see them through the eyes of these individuals. And there really is a fascination with this fire that we've seen since we've been covering it and reading your book. And I mentioned, you know, pre-tape, I had the book on the T and was asked five times about it. I mean, the North, I mean, I don't know about the rest of the country, but there really is almost a mild obsession in the Northeast. And we can all kind of remember where we were. I mean, I remember where I was the night of the fire. So, right. I mean, it really is very impactful. And to have these answers is very fulfilling and a sense. I mean, it's still quite a tragedy, but it is nice to have some answers. I mean, I think also for the families who lost people or had people really critically injured by this fire, one of the things you point out in your book, Scott, is that it's not only that people were lost or injured, then they had all these crippling medical bills and financial onuses. This was West Warwick. It was and is a a working class enclave of Rhode Island. You've got medical bills of hundreds of thousands of dollars for one person type of thing. Well, we we were let down because the building wasn't safe. You know, the building passed inspection. It got an all okay, literally all okay is what it says on the last inspection form. It was not all okay. So they were let down there. And then when it comes to justice, there was no mechanism in Rhode Island law for holding anyone accountable for the people who were hurt. Think of that. Hundreds of people hurt, as you mentioned, some of them will have injuries that they'll deal with for the rest of their Mm -hmm. lives. And there's nothing, nothing in the local law that allows anyone to be held responsible for that. The government officials who failed in their job to properly inspect the building, none of those people are held accountable. So there's a feeling of, of a failure of the justice system there. And then afterwards, the system that we have to help people who are in need, FEMA, the federal government, they didn't help. They had just helped uh, fire victims in Worcester for firefighters and the oh, yeah. families who were killed there. They stepped in then, but when it's 100 people, working class blue-collar folks in Westwood, Rhode Island, they take a pass. So the support systems are not there. These people had to really fend for themselves. Lawyers, of course, were very quick to jump in on this case, personal injury attorneys to, to sue for damages. And eventually, but a long time later, several years after the fire, there's a huge $176 million settlement from all the various insurance companies involved at this. But the lawyers take $59 million of that. The rest is divvied up between the folks. And a lot of them had already been gotten to before they got their settlement checks by kind of a very predatory bankers and lenders who said to them, look, I'll give you an advance on Mm. what you're going to get from the settlement. And then they ended up in the end getting like pennies on the dollar of the settlement because of that. So they were exploited in that way too. So really a tough situation all the way around for these folks. And we get to see that. Look, we're living in an age of uh, COVID and questions about our justice system now. And we're questioning our institutions and whether or not they're living up to our expectations. Uh, This happened in 2003. All the warning signs were there that our systems for caring for people really were not working. And now we see in 2020 that our systems are still not working. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we going to demand more? Are we going to expect more of our government? How is this going to change? Because we can't keep doing this over and over again. The fire that happened in West Warwick could happen again. It has happened again. There was a fire out here in Oakland, the ghost ship fire. 36 people killed. That was only a few years ago. Very similar in that it was a 
death trap of a building that had not properly been inspected or hadn't had any uh, protection codes in it. And people died as a result. So this is still happening. And I'm not sure any lessons were really learned. Can we talk a little bit about the legal proceedings that did transpire in this case? Sure. So can you speak to that a little bit, Scott? Because there were... Well, they all ended up being settlements, plea bargains. So one of the things that people might find hard to understand is that I'm sure you would say, and I'm sure I've said it, I would never, ever plead guilty to something that I didn't do. But the fact is that the plea bargain system in the United States is the justice system. 97% of cases are settled through plea bargains. So what we see on TV with courts and judges and juries, that is extremely rare that people get their quote unquote day in court. And that didn't happen here either. So the defendants were all pressured to, into taking plea bargains. And in fact, the Dedarian's plea involves the foam. Remember I said that yeah. piece of paper that shows that they actually ordered the correct foam, the safe foam, and they mm -hmm. didn't get it. But their plea actually goes to that. They, they were forced to plead to saying, yeah, that they screwed up on this foam thing. And as a result, that's why people died. So think of that. They actually were pressured to plead to something that they know. And demonstrably, there's a piece of paper that shows that they mm -hmm. actually didn't do. What's also a twist in that case with them was the deal they made with the prosecutors was that uh, there were two of them, two brothers, and one would have to serve prison time. And they had to decide amongst themselves which one was going to go to prison. Wow. And there's a scene in the book where they have to make this unbelievable mm -hmm. decision. They're at a Dunkin' Donuts in Cranston, Rhode Island. Of so course. Island. <laughs> where, all great, where all great meetings are held. In well, and uh, America and runs on Dunkin's, right? They want to be out of earshot of their children. They don't want everyone to know what they're going through. Uh, so they're having this discussion and it goes on for quite a while and they finally decide which one is the more suited to serve the time in prison so that they can get this behind everyone. And they make the wrong decision. And the implications of what happens because of that decision are really terrible. And even, frankly, the decision to take the plea bargain, which they seem to think or thought that maybe this would, you know, allow people to put things behind them, but not just them and their families, but the victims, their families, the state. There was so much anger. There was so much pain. They thought, well, you know, this is the right thing to do and this will allow people. No, no. The, quite the opposite happens. It does not settle anything. It makes people just so angry. And that anger simmers for years and years and years. It still simmers today. People are, I think there's a fair number of people who still are angry and think that uh, that whole situation was wrong. They wanted their day in court. They wanted mm -hmm. all that evidence put out there. They wanted to hear it all. So I'm trying to do that in the book. I'm trying to present to them what they didn't hear because they never got that day in court. I'm not sure it's going to please them. I'm not sure it's going to satisfy them. Now they'll know. But did they really want to know? I'm not sure it's going to be anything they want to hear. I think it's complicated. But also, the guy's name is Beakley. He also serves time, right? He yes, now his case was a little bit more straightforward. He yeah. did set off explosives in a building that were illegal. The fireworks were illegal. There was a long paper trail. The public never got to see that. They see that in the book now, a long mm -hmm. paper trail of warnings to him that he was precautions he should have taken that he didn't take and not to do these things and that he was putting people's lives at risk. There was a lot of that uh, that the public didn't see. They, I think the public in the end thought he was some sort of patsy, some sort of fall guy. But no, he was he was guilty of what he did. Now, of course, he never intended to kill 100 people. There's no intent in any of this. And there, look, there is a core question as to whether or not this was even a crime. Was it a crime or was it an accident?
this is a really good question. It's one that- I think it is possible to be criminally negligent though. Yes, correct. But the question of this idea of um, criminalizing accidents is something I explore in the book because it is a real school Mm -hmm. of uh, research. And there is a feeling that the trend to criminalizing accidents actually hurts the public at large. So the example that I cite in the book that people talk about is the Boeing plane crashes that happened in the last couple of years. There was one plane crash, and then there was a second plane crash. And the feeling was that had they really opened up an investigation after the first crash, and everyone felt comfortable being really honest and forthcoming about what was wrong or potentially wrong, that there would never have been a second crash. But that's not the world we live in. Because we criminalize accidents, everyone goes running for their lawyers. Everyone hides behind their legal defense team and they don't come forward and they don't lay all their cards on the table. And as a result, more accidents happen. So the criminalization of accidents is a whole field of study. There's a professor in, uh, I think, New Zealand who's really the expert. And I uh, include some of his work in the book because it's a good question. And I think that brings us to what in writing this, it took me a couple of days. I totally consumed your book. I I thought it was incredibly just well-written. The personal stories are weaved in there and it gives you an absolute sense of what happened that night and all the proceedings. And it's very, very good. But did you find writing about this really daunting? I mean, did you find it depressing? Did you you were immersed in this for a long time, you know, and uh... I think it was very hard on the people that I was dealing with, especially those key central people, the few that represent the many. In order to get this kind of really close point of view where we're on scene with people, we're seeing events through their eyes and experiencing the way they did and reacting through their emotions and their lens. It was quite a process. I would do an interview, I would gather the information for the chapter, and I would write a draft. And then a few months later, I would go back and we would do a read. I'd print it out, we'd do a read at the kitchen table. And the person had to kind of sign off on every verb and noun and sentence and mm-hmm. paragraph, because if I'm gonna claim that I'm seeing things through your eyes and this is how you saw them, then I wanna be accurate. What would happen at these table reads is that a whole other emotional level uh, kind of came to the surface. And it was very difficult. There were a lot of tears in doing this research. And even people who were not, say, primary central subjects of the book, say, I went to somebody to do a fact check. Maybe they happened to be in the room when someone else's uh, scene was playing out. It could go in any direction. I mean, I remember being at like coffee shops in hotel lobbies for a simple fact check on a paragraph or or a page and people would be weeping. Uh, this was very hard in that respect for those people. I'm, I'm so grateful that people shared their stories with me because it was really hard for them to do that. Can we talk a little bit about the band, about Great White and Jack Russell? Sure. That's pretty interesting. And I think our listeners might be interested to hear about your experience with them. Well, Jack Russell is a uh, uh, a character, to say the least. Um, yes. He and I spoke on the phone a few times, little bits here and there, but he kept uh, pushing me off on sitting down and doing a formal interview. Uh, I went and saw him do one of his shows. By the way, he can still sing, which is kind of amazing to me. He still has a, a, an incredible voice. And I did a lot of background work. I think I studied all three of his bankruptcies in order to get a handle <laughs> on what he's up to these days. And there's a lot of rich material out there about Jack Russell. So we finally, and they had me talk to this documentary maker who's a buddy of his, who he wanted to vet me to make sure I was okay. I spent like three hours with that guy. And then we finally set a time to do the formal sit down interview. And he contacted me the night before and he asked me for money. 
he wanted me to pay him to, to kind of cash in on on his version of uh, of the story. And I told him I couldn't do that. That was you know unethical to do that. And then he asked me about a backdoor, which I assume means like you know could he get a cut, cut of proceeds down the line? And it was clear we weren't going to do that. And then after that, he canceled our formal interview. Yeah, but right. fortunately for readers, Jack Russell does not always keep his mouth shut. And one of the revelations in the book has to do with something that he's been talking about recently. So in recent years, he has come forward and talked about his criminal record. So here we are talking about that, you know, nobody really had criminal intent in this case and a lot of criminal law based on intent. And so nobody intended for anyone to die. Nobody intended for everyone to get hurt. And I'm not saying that Jack Russell intended that either. Jack Russell had a significant criminal record prior to this tragedy. When he was a young man, he tried to murder his drug dealer. He went to the guy's house to rob and murder the guy and steal his drugs. And instead, he ended up shooting the guy's maid. And she did survive. So she did not die. So he did not get convicted of murder, but he did go to prison. Uh, but because he was a young man, he was released. Uh, this is all according to Jack, because he talks about it now. He brags about it now as a sort of, sort of badge of honor as a rocker. So he's out, I think, by the time he's 21 and eventually goes to, to Great White. So I always say that in all the what ifs of this tragedy, what if there had been sprinklers? What if those guys never bought that club? What if they had never booked that band? I add, what if the state of California put people in jail for more than a year for attempted murder? Yeah. Then there would have been no Great White and all these people would be alive. Mm -hmm. Excellent point. I guess the, do you feel like there's any silver linings here? with this story? Well, I think bringing it to people's attention and getting them to talk about it, getting to think about the issues. Look, Dangerous Foam is still for sale. I can tell you that firsthand because I actually ordered some soundproofing foam from Amazon. And then when I got it, I tested it and it went up like a torch. Wow. This is stuff that they are selling and listed as flame retardant, flame resistant. So this mm -hmm. is still out there. That is still happening. That's a present a danger for folks. I think people, if you can't help, but when you see this story or hear about it next time you go to a place you're going to look for the exits yeah you know i know it? i will yeah. yeah yeah i mean i went to a concert here in san francisco at the bill graham auditorium kind of an older building it was lizzo uh back in december when we could go to things and i remember thinking oh we're all gonna die if anything goes wrong in here yeah. so packed to the rafters do you like hang around the exit sign no i, I don't <laughs> I'm, I'm not, uh, no but look even i saw uh ed sharon at foxborough stadium a couple of years ago and i'm thinking there's no way I have my requisite seven square feet assigned to me. I was so crammed in, in a seat, an assigned seat. I'm thinking this, what if something goes bad? It doesn't always have to be a fire. There are other awful things that have happened at concerts. Stampedes. Um, and, right. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. are these public venues, are they safe? I think you need to take note of the exits, have a plan to to get out if uh, you go to one of these places. And I'm, you know, this is what people did when they saw that footage way back in 2003, that awful footage that was played all around the, the earth. Uh, I, so many people have said to me, oh, that was the night when I saw that. I started checking where the exit is when I go to these clubs. Oh, it's, yeah. 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 And I think it's still being, I mean, I, I've watched it recently. I think it's still being watched all the time and it will probably be a resurgence of that with your book. Well, maybe, yes. I Again, I don't recommend looking at the video. No, I agree. I but it, it really does just bring home, uh, yeah. you know, how, it, I mean, Sarah and I were even struck when we went there that there had been a club there. Yeah. It's really quite, and I think, you know, in our podcast, we talk so much about Newport and about the wealth of Rhode sure. Island that a lot of our listeners don't, you know, maybe aren't, you know, as aware if they're from different parts of the world, even that, that that's not all of Rhode Island. And that often that's what we portray, but this is a very working class area. I think that uh, 
Rhode Island is a pretty working class state, to be yes. honest, for the most part. And, uh, you know, I use expressions in the book like salt of the earth. That's what I right. like to say about the folks there. And it, it is funny that Rhode Islanders, because it's such a small state, is so close knit. People seem to know each other and actually people speak differently. I remember being at a, a supermarket a couple of years ago when I was home and some woman just came over to me and she said, well, clearly you seem lost that you can't find something. And I'm like, who does that? They would never do that here in California. But Rhode Islanders, they figure I probably know you or I know someone who knows you. So I have no right, problem coming right. up and talking to you. That's funny. That's pretty yeah. charming. Yeah, that is. Listen, we could talk to you all day long, but we actually have another trip to Providence coming up and we I, do. Think, I think we'll revisit the memorial. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. and, uh, well, I'm so impressed that you went there. I have to say, I mean, for me, every time I'm in the state, I go to the memorial. It reminds me why I wrote this book and what is important about this story. Well, uh, I think very visiting emotional. it after reading your book, too, will be able to put faces yeah. to names. And yeah, I just it's very moving. Very, very moving. Excellent job, Scott. I, I well, think you're you. getting a lot of press with this and you should. And we really yeah. recommend all of our readers. We have the link on our, I actually just put the link up today on Facebook. It's in our group. We're, we're going to share it everywhere. We really encourage everybody to get this book and it's a real page turner. You will not regret it. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And we are honored to have, have you here on Ivy League Murders. This has really been a pleasure. Well, thank you. 